Well, good morning. Good to see you this morning. How many of you are tired this morning? Everybody looks a little, little tired. Well, it's good to see you anyway. Thank you for not going to the lake or campground somewhere like all of our other friends, but hopefully, hopefully they're having some fun wherever they're at. But it's good to be with you uh, this morning and uh, looking forward to being in the Word. Isn't it a privilege to be able to come to a place where we can gather with other believers around the Word of God? Isn't that an amazing privilege that we have every single Sunday? I hope you don't take that for granted. I hope that you don't uh, treat that lightly. Maybe, maybe you thought this morning, oh, is it worth it? Is it worth it to get up? Is it worth it? When all of my friends are out, you know, at the lake and camping, is it worth it to go to the house of the Lord this morning to hear the word of God? And it is. It is worth it. What a privilege it is uh, to be in the house of the Lord with you around his word. Let's stand in honor of God's word and find Acts chapter 19. We're going to finish up Acts chapter 19 this week. We're in the city of Ephesus with Paul the apostle on his third missionary journey. The city of Ephesus, Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 11, and we're going to read all the way down through verse 41 through the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 11, wonderful Wonderful stories this morning, wonderful passage this morning. So pay, pay attention and walk along with me as I read it, starting there in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. 
And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried about one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus! Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it should be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I told you this week we were going to talk about magic and money and mobs last week. This is a fantastic story, a fantastic account. I want to ask you a question this morning. Are you an optimist? Are you an optimist? Some of you are nodding your head. Some of you are shaking your head. Are you an, what, is, what is an optimist? An optimist is someone who always sees the silver lining in things, right? An optimist is someone who always sees the positive side. Everywhere around uh, an optimist is opportunity. Although things may have not worked out perfectly today, tomorrow they'll work out. Everything will be just fine. Everything's getting better. It'll all be all right in the end. I have never been, a, been, I've never been accused of being an optimist. That's not, I don't know why you're laughing about that, everybody. I've never been accused of being an, uh, being an optimist. Uh, what, what, do, uh, what do pessimists call themselves? Realists, yeah, realists. See, you know this. People say, well, I'm an optimist. And you say, well, I'm a realist. You, you may feel good about things. You may feel like everything's getting better or everything's going to be all right. But I'm just going to tell you how it really is. I'm a realist. I have a real perspective on things. Well, I want you to know that I really am an optimist. I really am an optimist. And this passage, I think, connects to my optimism. I am, and this is going to be a, this is going to be a big word, okay? And I think most of you, or some of you at least, will know what this word means. I am an eschatological optimist. 
eschatological optimists. You know what eschatology is? Sure you do. It's the, it's the doctrine of last things. Eschatology is the doctrine of last things. I am an eschatological optimist. And what I mean by that is, is not just that I, you know, things are really bad in this world. Have you, have, you, have, you, have you thought about that when you look around and look at society and read the news and all of that? You look around and go, man, things are really bad. We had a big uh, get-together at my house yesterday. People came by. I roasted a whole pig over the weekend. Yeah, that was really a lot of fun and a lot of work. But we had people come by yesterday, and, and when, when, you, when you have people together, right, you get people together, and you don't know what to talk about, you, you're trying to find something to talk about, maybe, maybe you bring up, things sure are crazy, aren't they? Things sure are getting bad these days. Things sure, sure aren't what they used to be. Maybe that's a conversation that you have every once in a while. Well, when I look around at the world... Being an eschatological optimist doesn't mean that I just look around at things and, well, things are really bad, but you know what? One day, one day, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to make it all good. I'm just going to sit and wait for everything to work itself out. Jesus is going to come back and fix everything, and so I'm just going to hold tight. That's not what I mean by eschatological optimism. What, I'm, what I mean by being an optimist is this, an eschatological optimist. I believe, I know where God is taking everything in this world. He's told us. He's already told us exactly what he's doing. He's told us exactly where he's taking everything. He's even told us what your life and what my life is about today. And he's told us that what our life is about today is his highest good. He's making us into the image of his son. And he is forming a people for his son. And everything will result in this earth Everything is headed towards the enthronement and the exaltation of his son king and his people surrounding that throne. That's what he is doing. And that purpose will not fail. And so I call myself an eschatological optimist because I know where everything is going and it is all good. And that impacts the way I treat today. The way I think about my life and what's important. The way I set goals. The way I undertake meaning life. This passage has a lot to do with what I just said. Here's how I want to attack this morning, okay? We want to walk through, I'm going to walk through the passage. I want to walk through the passage with you and look at the passage, explain the passage. And then I want to give you three reasons today. Three reasons for my eschatological optimism. I'm going to use that word 15 more times today. So uh, this is a doctrine of last things. I can't, I can't say doctrine of last things. I want, I, want to get, I want to give you three reasons for my optimism concerning last things. Eschatological optimism. Okay, so let's walk through the passage quickly here. We know where Paul is at. He's in Ephesus. 
He's in Ephesus. We saw that last week. He's been reasoning, lecturing in the hall of Tyrannus. And it says in verse number 10 that all the residents, through his lecturing and through the sending out of others, all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom is going out. Verse 11, it says, and God was doing. Do you notice that? The emphasis isn't on Paul doing any works, it's God was doing. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. What's going on here? Well, as you remember, Jesus demonstrated this type of power when he was walking the earth. Remember the the lady who found him in a crowd and did everything she could just to get to him, just to touch the hem of his garment. You remember that? The woman who had issue of blood for 12 years, she, she searched him out and got her way to Jesus and touched him. And just touching his garment healed her. And he, he said, whoa, power just left me. Power just went out of me somewhere. Who touched me? Jesus exercised that type of power. Peter also, Peter also exercised that type of power. Remember, this is Acts chapter 3, earlier on in the book of Acts, where Peter would be walking down, and even his shadow, they would bring him out and line the streets, line the pathway with the sick and the diseased. And Peter would walk, and the shadow would pass over them, and they would be healed of their diseases. So what's going on here with Paul? What this is doing is showing us, literally, it's showing us that the apostle Paul, he is indeed an apostle with Jesus' authority on him. Paul is an apostle with power and authority. It's marking Paul off as a unique individual. Like Peter. So the book of Acts is divided into two sections. Peter, section chapters 1 through 12, and Paul, chapters 13 through 28. This is showing that Paul is like Peter, who is also like Jesus, exercising power. This type of power. Remarkable power that God was exercising through the hands of Paul. And this power, as we've also seen in the book of Acts, this power is attractive to charlatans and to deceivers. That's what happens. Look at it there. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So these Jewish exorcists, this was common in this day. The superstitious cultures that existed in the first century and still exist, by the way, in much of the world. They blamed every disease and every ailment and every bad day. They blamed on some evil spirit. And people made money by taking advantage of those who were gullible. Coming saying, hey, pay us money and we'll, we'll clean you of your demons. Cleanse your house of its demonic spirits. And they were taking money. Well, there were seven of these types of guys. Seven sons of the high priest Sceva. Sceva is just a chief priest, an important priest of the day. And he had seven sons. This is comical, kind of. The seven sons of Sceva. 
are these types of Jewish exorcists. They travel around taking advantage of people, taking people's money, taking advantage of their superstitions. So they go and find a guy, they have a guy, they've been contracted out to rid him of his evil spirit. Verse 15, but the evil spirit answered them. Look at what the evil spirit says. Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, or I respect, I, I, I recognize the authority of the name of Paul. Jesus I know, Paul I respect, but who you is? That's improper grammar, by the way. You're not supposed to say that. It's just improper grammar for emphasis. Who are you? Jesus I know. Paul I recognize. Paul has power. Jesus' power on him. But who are you? You have no power. You have no authority. Who are you? Not only that, the Spirit then turns on them and attacks them. Masters all of them, overpowers them so that they flee out of the house naked and wounded. They seek to manipulate the power of God for their own purposes. They want to use God's power for their own gain. We've seen that, right, with Simon the Magi in uh, Acts chapter 8. We see in Acts chapter 16 those who are using a girl to tell fortunes, to get rich off of her, using an evil spirit. They're, They're trying to manipulate and control Spiritual power for their own gain. We see this today all over the place. But they are exposed. They are exposed, shown as false, powerless, and they are put to shame. This event becomes known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And, and then look at, look at what the text says. Verse number 17 Look at the result of this event, verse number, at the end of verse number 17. And fear, this is the residents of Ephesus, fear fell upon them all. That is awe, okay? That is awe. This event had an effect of creating awe for the residents of Ephesus. Awe and reverence fall upon them. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. It was made great. Jesus, his name, his authority, his person is exalted and seen as great, praised there in Ephesus. There is one who has real power and greatness. And it is the king whom God has established, his son king. He is truly great. His power is great. His name is extolled as a result of this event. And then, and then look at the transformation that happens. Look at it there in the text. Verse 18. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. So it sounds like, what it sounds like happened here are those who had believed, either either they believed upon Jesus as a result of this event, 
or they had already made a profession of faith in Jesus as Lord, and this event causes them to take evaluation of some of their secret practices. Many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. What, a, what an amazing event. Do you, do you remember, did you ever go to youth camp? And they like built a fire and they like, you know, or maybe youth group. That's probably more, more apt. Youth group. And you would have that Wednesday night, you know, where they would talk about it for weeks. You're going to bring all your Nirvana CDs or whatever you had and, and burn them all. I had a friend one time that they had a youth group and they, they buried them all. They, it actually happened several times. But they would, would go out and bury all of their CDs and, you know, bad music and things. And then he'd go out and dig them all up afterwards, you know, and get everybody's stuff. <laughs> I'm just saying, that's, that's... Well, we've all been a part of, of something like tr- trying to force the transformation, Right? Show you're serious in following Jesus. Burn all your stuff. But that's actually what happened. And it, it was unprovoked. No, no one said, hey, come and do this. They did it of their own will. They saw the power of God demonstrated. And this caused them to take evaluation of where they were putting their trust what they were believing, what they were practicing, coming and confessing, (coughs) confessing and divulging. Here's what I've been doing. I want nothing to do with it anymore. I'm going to burn it, to burn all the books, 50,000 pieces of silver. Big, big chunk of change. Magic. We've seen magic, as I said a couple of times, with Simon and those in Acts chapter 16. What's going on with the magic here? Magic, this is, this is an excursus in of itself, and I'm not going to do an excursus, okay? It deserves its own message. What is a Christian's relationship to magic? What should a Christian's relationship be to magic? What, what's, what's the deal? Why does the Bible seem to say a lot about, and it does, it seems to say a lot about sorcery and wizardry and necromancy and all these things? The Old Testament, God strictly forbid any involvement with the occult or any involvement with magic and sorcery and wizardry. God forbid his people to participate because they were surrounded by cultures, by nations that sought to hear from the other side or sought to ascertain some knowledge through the practice of magic. And that's really what's at stake. God forbid his people to go look for another voice. Isn't it interesting, magic, and people even today, people's fascination with magic, this idea that there is a transcendent reality. I think think all of us realize, all of us know that there is a transcendent reality, that that there's a reality out there that we can't, touch and we can't see at the same time there's a desire to control it to manipulate it 
to understand it, to use it. This is, this is not, right, this passage isn't telling us and passages like this that deal with magic, it's not saying God, God wants you to not have anything to do with Gandalf, okay? God, God doesn't want you to ever read Harry Potter. That's not what it's saying. But it is saying something very serious to us. Where do you get your knowledge? What is it, what is your source of truth? You see, there is a transcendent reality. There is a reality that you and I can't touch with our hands and can't see with our eyes. There is a spirit world. It is real. There's a transcendent reality. But here's the, here's the deal. God has revealed to us in his word everything we need to know about that reality. God has revealed to us everything we need to know about the spirit reality, the spiritual world, the forces of spiritual light and darkness. They come after seeing this power demonstrated and they confess and divulge their practices. They leave they're false sources of knowledge and practices. And look at the result of that. Look, look down at verse number 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase. And, and this is the first time it describes it this way. And prevail mightily. The word of the Lord continues to increase and prevail mightily. The word of the Lord, the gospel, prevails. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, takes his disciples aside. Do you remember this in Matthew 16? He takes his disciples aside and he asks them, Who am I? Who do you think I am? Peter, Peter there makes a good profession. A confession of who Jesus is. And then Jesus says to Peter, Peter, your name's Peter. But on this rock, on this confession, on this profession of who I am, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Sometimes, sometimes we think that we're on the defensive. Have you ever felt that way in culture? Like we're on the defensive. What we need to do is just kind of huddle up and hunker down and make sure that we don't get in, impacted and affected by all this bad stuff out there. We're on the defensive. But in fact, the Bible tells us and teaches us that we are on the offensive. We have the gospel which prevails. And nothing will stand in its way. Hasn't that been what you've seen in the book of Acts? See, some of us don't even believe that this morning. We don't believe that. 
When I say Romans, you, you know Romans 1.16. Romans 1.16. Maybe you could quote that. You should be able to quote that, right? Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God to salvation. For the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is what Paul believed. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm going to proclaim and preach and stick with the gospel because it is the power of God and to salvation. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And you and I have that word. We have the gospel. That's what we're formed around is that gospel. We're not on the defensive. We have the power of God in the gospel. Our message prevails. It defeats the powers of darkness. It transforms lives. As we see here, it transforms people so much so that they would bring their, all their stuff, confess and divulge their practices and burn them all. Even at great cost to themselves. You see that? Even at 50,000 pieces of silver, they say, that's nothing. Just throw it all on the fire. Transforms lives. The power of the gospel transforms lives. But even when I quote Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God and salvation. You hear that, you go, hey, amen. But secretly, you're like, well, that's true propositionally. That's a true statement propositionally. But that's not really my experience That's not really what I've seen. And and that's why, that's why, by the way, you're an eschatological pessimist. (laughs) This is getting ahead of myself. The gospel is the power of God to salvation, and it will prevail. It will prevail. Let's see, let's, let's continue. Let's hurry on here. The gospel is not done and having its effect there in Ephesus. Look at verse number 23. Verse number 21 and 22, we have Paul's travel plans. We see a trajectory set for us for the rest of the book. Paul's going to get to Rome, which is the capital really, ultimately the capital of the ancient world there, Rome. Verse 23, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. Now, Artemis, it's the, it's the Greek version of the Roman Diana, And this is where her temple was. Ephesians was the home of the temple to Artemis. Artemis was a goddess of fertility and of the hunt. She blessed you on the hunt and brought life to the world. We could talk a lot about Artemis. I'm not here to talk about Artemis. But she had a temple that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a massive structure, six stories tall. And in that day and age, it was well known throughout the rest of the world. The temple of Artemis is in Ephesians, and it is amazing. It was made completely out of marble, a massive structure. In fact, some people think it was the largest structure of that day, the temple of Artemis here in Ephesus. Well, Demetrius is a silversmith. 
And he makes his living by building images of Artemis and working in the trades there to bring uh, to other tradesmen and other craftsmen work all, all for the worship and the idolizing of Artemis. And he puts this together. The gospel, see this, the gospel is transforming the society that Demetrius lives in. And this has a real impact on him because it's affecting his income. He, he, he realizes that his profits are going down. Paul's message, Paul's gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ is having impact on the economy of Ephesus. And he gets the tradesmen together. He's beginning to panic here a little bit. He gets the tradesmen together. And he says, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. You see that not only in Ephesus, but also in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods with, made with hands are not gods. Now, even there, right? Demetrius is showing the silliness of his position. This Paul is going around saying that the God made, gods made with hands aren't gods. That, that would be correct. The gods made with hands. We read that a minute ago in our liturgy from Isaiah. How can you worship something you make with your own hands? That seems ridiculous, but this is what we do in our sin. He says, the gods made with hands are not gods. That's part of this message Paul is preaching. And there's a danger, not only that this trade of ours may come to disrepute, People may not think worshiping Artemis is a good thing, and they, they might actually think it's a bad thing to do, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. This great structure that brings Ephesus fame and us notoriety, this may be counted as nothing. It, it may be held in disrepute, and it may be seen as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. Man, Demetrius gets it. Do you see how well Demetrius understands the impact of the gospel? Do you see that? Demetrius gets it. He understands the implications here. Hold on. If what Paul is saying is true, that means the goddess that we build our fortune on, she's not a goddess after all. And her temple is nothing but a structure. And people will actually come to think of it as nothing. They might actually want to tear it down. And she won't have her magnificence anymore. That's the idea, right? She whom all Asia and the world worship. Now look at what, what impact that has, this, this message that Demetrius gives. When they heard this, they were enraged and started crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! By the way, just because you shout it loud doesn't make it true. And that is a very important principle. Did you know, by the way, just because I shout doesn't make it true either. I'm trying to work on it. Somebody said, who was that said that? Paul Smith, I think, said that. Somebody asked, hey, how did you meet Paul? He's like, well, I showed up and this guy just was yelling at me. I thought, hey, this guy, you know, I'm sorry. I just get excited. They shout it loud, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion. Confusion. 
and they rushed together into the theater. So you have this mass of people enraged, shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and it's a, it's a scene of great confusion. In fact, you see it later on. Many of them, don't, most of them, it says, don't even know why they're there. There's just a mob, and they join in, and they're shouting, and they're, they're confused. It actually, the word assembly here, uses it three times, I believe. The word assembly is the word ecclesia, which is the word we get our word church from. Okay? It's an assembly. This is a confused church, a church of confusion. An assembly, a gathering of confusion. They keep Paul from going forward. They want to protect Paul from the confusion and from the anger Eventually, a town clerk steps in. Well, Alexander steps in first. Look at it there. Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, and this is a staggering, they, they shouted for two hours. Two hours! They stood there and shouted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Again, confusion, silliness. And I only preach for like an hour. So, for two hours, they, they attributed greatness to Artemis. For an hour, we can be here. Then the town clerk steps in. The town clerk seeks to reinstore re, re, re order. He says, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone? Now, here, here's the idea. The tradition was not that this stone, this, so the, the temple of Artemis was this magnificent structure. And inside the house of Artemis, she, the, the image of Artemis, a large imis, image of the uh, goddess Artemis stood. And this stone, this image it was believed, fell from the sky. So nobody built it. So, so look what the town clerk's doing. The town clerk's trying to rectify a little bit what Demetrius has said. At least it seems to be. He says, this, this stone wasn't made with hands after all. It fell from the sky. We know that. We know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky, seeing then that these things cannot be denied. You can't deny this great house and this stone that fell from the sky. Since we can't deny that, he says, so he's appealing to their knowledge, quote unquote, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. Now I think this is interesting. This is, again, a theme we've seen over and over again throughout the entire book of Acts and in, even in the Gospels. The, the preachers, the ones who proclaim the good news are brought to trial over and over again. Do you see that? Do you see that pattern? Do you see that theme? Over and over again, uh, the gospel and those who preach and proclaim the gospel are brought to trial. But do you notice 
that every time it happens, the people who are trying, the proclaimers of the gospel, can't accuse them of anything wrong. They can't actually accuse them of doing anything to break the law. I think that's insightful. I think that's, that's, that's worth stopping and, and thinking about for a moment. Jesus was tried, but remember Pilate found nothing wrong. What was it that brought Jesus to death? It's a hatred of the Jewish people and the willingness of the Romans to keep the peace, to do whatever necessary to keep the peace. We see the same thing with Peter and John. They are brought forth and tried, but all they can be accused of is preaching in the name of Jesus. They didn't do anything to break the law. They didn't cause any troubles or any problems. Stephen is brought before an unjust council, right? One that just speedily uh, kills him because they hate what he's saying. They hate what he's preaching. We see that as well with Peter being in prison. Remember Acts chapter 12, Herod imprisons, he actually kills James and then he imprisons Peter. But why? Because he knows it pleases the Jews. Peter's done nothing wrong. Just preaching the gospel. The same with Paul and Silas in Philippians 16. They're arrested. Why? And that's, again, specifically because their preaching had impacted the financial well-being of a certain group of people. And so they they raise up a, a mob, a crowd, and they beat them and drag them off to jail. But in the end, they can't accuse them of anything. I think, this is a, I think this is a powerful point to make. All of these men are, all of these men are innocent of breaking any laws or seeking to take matters into their own hands. What, what are they guilty of? They're guilty of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And that proclamation is what will cause men to hate you and to hate me and to seek to forgive me for the, the crassness here. They, th- this, will, this will cause men to want to shut us up. Shut them up. But how sad it is when God's people, and here's how it reasons out in people's minds, I'm just telling you. God is ultimate authority Jesus is the true king. So that means I don't have to obey the laws of the land because God's really the king. No. No, we we preach the gospel unashamedly. That's the power of God and salvation. But I, I don't seek to overthrow the law of the land. I'm not a I'm not a revolutionary in that sense. Now again. There are many people who disagree with me today. I think even today in our cultural moment, there are many people who think that what we need to do is to do everything we can politically, to do everything we can to to overthrow and to have an impact in politics. I am for, and I, I, this is an excursus again in and of itself, I am for political involvement. I am for Christians being politically involved. Absolutely. In fact, I think that's a very Christian thing to do. Being a good citizen, being an active citizen is a very important part of being a Christian in our nation. But where, let me just ask it this way, where is your hope? 
Where do you believe real power is found? Do you think our hope is in politics? Do you think our hope is in accomplishing something that way? No, we preach the gospel and we don't shy away from the implications of the gospel. And that is what will transform people. That's what will transform a society and a culture. Starting, by the way, with your own personal culture. What what amazes me is how often people will get so hot and bothered about wanting to change society and wanting to change culture when the, the culture of their own lives is in sad shape. Has the gospel and the truth of the gospel, has it changed your own personal culture in the way you approach life? Has it changed the culture of your family and your home? Has it, has it had a transformation impact on those people that you associate with and you're living with in your immediate circumference? That's where it begins. So let me give you three reasons here. See, walking through the text. I was just walking through the text, explaining the text, and there's a million different ways we could go with that. But, but let, me, let me just give you three reasons, okay? Why I am an eschatological optimist. Let me give you three reasons. And, by the way, three reasons I'm hoping that you will adopt for your perspective and your outlook on the world and where everything is going. Number one... Reason number one, reasons I'm, so if you haven't, if you stopped listening at some point, tune back in, okay? Three reasons that I am an eschatological optimist, and I hope that you are too, and will be too. Number one, reason number one, our God has all the power. Our God has all the power. Don't we see that here in this passage? There is no authority. There is no power. God has all of it. See, when you look at society and it's not going the way that you want it to go, I understand that. But do you know why it's going the way it is going? Because God has ordained it. He's got all the power. Nothing in this universe is happening unless God has said it will happen. Nothing. So, so as a Christian, we don't run around nervous and frantic. Oh, what's going to happen? Rub our hands together. I don't know what's going to take place. No, our God is in perfect control. Do you believe that? It doesn't matter who's in office. It doesn't matter what our society is doing. God is in control. He's, he's got all the power. That's demonstrated here in this passage very clearly. When other powers... Right? Seek to have their way. God decides. And, and I don't think that many Christians have this perspective with them all the time. And, and, and in fact, I think a lot of us buy into this idea that this is a good versus evil proposition that this is like like there's a force of evil out there and there's a force of good god is the god is the ruler of the good and there's a another force out there of evil satan is over all that's evil and somehow they're in this this battle that is 
up for grabs. Good versus evil. We'll see who wins. No, it's not, it doesn't work that way. You see, Satan only has power that God has ordained for him to have. Satan only does what God has said he can do. God has all the power. How, how, does that, how does that impact the way you view your life? His power is undeniable. His, his power is what gives us comfort and security. His power is what gives us confidence. When, when Romans 1.16 says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. You see, that, that right there will test us in what we truly believe about who has the power. What, what that verse is saying is that I can proclaim the gospel faithfully and that faithful proclamation can actually transform people, can transform cultures, can transform societies, and at the root of it can transform me. I can be transformed by the gospel. How many of you are discouraged by your constant failures or your inability to change it seems. What, what is the power for change? What is the power for transformation? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. What is the gospel? We, we've, we do this, hopefully, every week. What is the gospel? Can you tell me what the gospel is? The, the gospel, very important, the gospel, and, and, and I heard this from Tim Keller. Tim Keller passed away this last week, this past week. I don't know if you know Tim Keller or not. He, he's, a, he's a controversial figure for some people. I've been greatly helped by Tim Keller, just his, his gentleness and desire to reach people in the culture. But Tim Keller passed away this week, and I heard this first from Tim Keller. He says this, the gospel, the gospel is good news, not good advice. The gospel is good news, not good advice. I think sometimes we think the gospel is good advice about how to get to heaven, but that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is not just good advice about how we can be right with God and get to heaven. The gospel is just that. It is good news. The gospel is a truth. It's the truth about reality. What is real. It's news. So, so you don't do this anymore? I don't do this anymore, but I remember the days. Remember, we'd get the, we'd get the Sunday paper on our doorstep, and you'd open it up. I'd always open up to the sports page in the comics section, right? But remember, you got the paper out, and you would read the paper, and you'd look at the news, the gospel is good news. So when I, when I open my phone and scroll through the news, I'm looking at all these different pieces of news. They are seeking to tell me about reality. So when I look at all that news, I go, man, our world's really in bad shape, isn't it? Man, things aren't going very well. 
this happened and that happened and this person died and that person you know, exploded that place or whatever. All the bad news. No, the gospel is the good news of God and his kingdom established and mediated in his son, King Jesus. Jesus who died for the sins of his people and was raised again to deliver his people from darkness and from death. When you look at the news, scroll through your phone and look at the news. Is it done in light of what's truly good news? What is the news of the kingdom? Which one impacts? Which one affects? What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of God and his kingdom. God, who is the one and only true God, the creator God, who made all things. And because he has made all things, he is the sovereign, the authority over all things. Man, Man, the truth about man. So the gospel is the truth about God, who God is, and it's the truth about man. Who are we? Well, we are creation. We are made for God. We are made for his worship. We were made for him. He wasn't made by our hands. We were made by him, for him. And because of that, your life has a purpose. And that purpose is to bring glory and worship and praise and honor and glory to the God who made you. But man has rejected that purpose. Man has rejected the worship of God. Man has sought to worship the creation, other things. And so mankind then, in rejecting God, the God who made them, the God who should be worshipped, we've rejected him and worshipped other things. So God is pouring out his wrath upon mankind. God's wrath is coming against man. This is the truth about man. This is the truth about who we are. We are deserving of wrath. But God has shown his righteousness by putting forth Jesus as the atonement, the perfect satisfaction of his wrath. Jesus has come and has died and has endured God's wrath for his people in their place. And he has been exalted. He has risen from the dead, delivering his people from darkness and death. And he is exalted now and given all glory and honor and power and authority as the king, as God's perfect son king. So it's the truth about God, the gospel. It's the truth about mankind, the gospel. It's the truth about who Jesus, his son king, truly is. That's the gospel. And the gospel requires us to respond. Are we going to believe the good news that God has come to us to deliver us from sin and darkness. Are we going to believe that? That he has come to establish his forever kingdom. The response is to repent and believe that good news. That's the right response. And this is the gospel. So, reason number one, I'm, I'm an eschatological optimist. God has all the power. 
And that power that God has sent into the world, right, is found in his gospel. That's the power of God into salvation. Reason number two, I'm an eschatological optimist. Reason number two goes right in line with that. And it's this. God has established his king forever. This is Psalm 2. Those who oppose God, he holds them in derision. And he says to them, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God, who has all the power, has established his king forever. Earlier, I uh, talked a little bit about the temple of Artemis. Do you know why I had to tell you about Artemis? Because that temple doesn't exist anymore. Uh, that, that temple is ruins, okay? So, so there they are in this crowd of confusion saying, Great, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They were shouting it loud. No, that's not greatness. It doesn't exist anymore. In fact, you, you know nothing about Artemis. That temple doesn't even stand anymore. That's not greatness. But our king has been established forever. That's who we serve and worship. This is important for us. Because his king has been established forever, it is his name that we should exalt and extol in our lives. It is his name that we need to give ourselves to and his glory and his power and his authority. Reason number one, God has all the power. Number two, his king's been established forever. See, isn't isn't there every reason to be an optimist? Number three, third reason, the word of his kingdom will prevail. It will prevail. It will, let me put it this way, it will win the day. The word of the kingdom will prevail, and that word has the power, the word of his kingdom has the power to transform lives. Why? Because it transforms worship. The gospel, the good news, the, the, the gospel realities is aimed, it's, it's aimed at transforming the worship of the individual. When I see the truth about who God is, the truth about who I am, the truth about who Jesus is, the truth about where I am in relationship to God and what I, what I need, I need to repent and believe upon Jesus. Jesus, he is the great king. He is the one who, who deserves all exaltation and glory and power and authority. When I realize that and my life becomes shaped around that reality, it transforms my life. That's what the gospel does. You see, if you think the gospel is just a good advice about to get to heaven, how to get to heaven, it hasn't transformed your life. The gospel is not transforming your life because you think it's good advice. Not the good news that it is. You think there's another truth, another source of knowledge, other wisdom. There's other things that are going to make me happy. There are other things that are going to bring prosperity. There's other things that I need to, to seek after in this life. No, no, no. The gospel is the good news of God and his kingdom that's been established and mediated in his son king. It is reality. 
And that reality is what should shape our thinking and our desiring and our behaving, everything about our life. The good news shapes our worship, what we, wor- what we really worship. And because of that, it's very important. Culture, culture is downstream from worship. Culture is downstream from worship. You see that here in Acts 19 very clearly. Do, do you see what happened in Ephesus? They had monetized idolatry. The people were idol worshipers here in Ephesus, and people monetized that. And that reinforced and built and established and reinforced that culture. Culture is downstream from worship. I, I, I sometimes am in conversations where people say, you know what the problem is today? Have you ever been in one of those conversations? You know what the problem is today? Well, it's all those kids playing video games today. All those kids in their basement playing video games. I had a conversation like that the other day. Somebody says, well, it's all about video. It's all, the whole ills of society are blamed because kids are playing video games today. Video games always get a bad rap. Listen, you, sh- you probably shouldn't be sitting in your basement playing video games. I'm just saying. But, no, that's, that's a symptom of an issue, right? The issue really is a worship issue. And people, our culture, our society will monetize what people worship. Do you, do you know why? Do you know why you can't shut things down like the pornography industry and the abortion industry? You know why you don't shut those things down? Is because people in their worship, right? They, they, they worship the wrong God. And our society will always monetize and make money off of people's worship. That's what happens. Give them what they want. I'm going to say this, and this is, I'm at the end and I've got to be done, but, but I was thinking, if we, if we really want to, and I'm not giving any practical ways to move forward here, so that's a, that's a problem, but if we really want to address abortion, Let's do some math here. If we really want to address abortion, it, our, our victories aren't going to be found in the courts, okay? Now, I'm all for legal battles. I'm all for that. I think we ought to be doing that. I, I rejoice. You know, I rejoice when Roe versus Wade got overturned, right? But that's not where our hope is. We, if we really want to say, let's do simple math. Who, who, is it, who is it that's being used? Who is it that's taking advantage Primarily of, our, of the abortion industry. Who is it? Poor, minorities, people who have no other place to turn. That's why some of these ministries, right, they try to intervene. They try to give hope. They, they, try, to, they try to get in the way and, and help them see that there's other alternatives. The society wants you to think, well, it's, well, it's really... You know, well-educated people that are taking advantage of... No, no, no. It's, it's impoverished, minority people that are on the other side of the tracks. You, you want to stop abortion? 
But you want to put a dent in that? Preach the gospel to people that are vulnerable. Preach the gospel to people that are vulnerable. People that don't look like us necessarily. If, if we'll stop and think about this as God's people, we should be much more active in the proclamation of the good news because that is the power of God at salvation. Again, like I said, I'm not giving practical ways forward and that's a problem. I, I've been thinking all week, what does that look like? Maybe you know what that looks like. Maybe you have an idea of what that looks like. But I just know that as God's people, our hope is in the gospel and the preaching of the gospel. Three reasons I'm an optimist. And that's just an illustration. Three reasons I'm an optimist. Because our God has all the power. His king has been established forever. That is real. That is true. And the word of his kingdom will prevail. So I have hope for the future. I have hope for my life. I have hope for your life. I have hope for our culture. That the gospel can't transform people's lives. I'm going to leave all the applications off because I took way too long. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for its truth. I pray that you would use your word to convict us, show us, expose to us where we're putting our trust, where we're putting our efforts how big we think of ourselves, how, how great we think we are, how powerful we think we are. And ultimately, you are the one who has all the power, God. You, you are the one who has all the authority. You are the one who has established your king forever. You are the one who is going to bring your kingdom to this earth. We put our trust in you. I pray that you would make us evangelists as optimists for the future, real optimists, I pray that we would preach the gospel because we do believe it can transform people. God, convict us of our unbelief concerning the word of the kingdom. And I pray as we are around people even this week and as we're thinking about this message this week that we would we would consider the applications, the real practical applications of these truths, God, that you have all the power, that your king, Jesus, is established, that the word of your kingdom will prevail, it will transform lives, it will transform people in their worship, which can have a drastic impact on culture and society. I pray that you would be honored and glorified through your word this week in our lives. Amen.